What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters, and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. Welcome back to Changing the Narrative. Today, I have special guest Jacob Hornberger. He is the founder of the Future of Freedom Foundation. He was a trial attorney for 12 years, professor at University of Dallas, teaching law and economics. He's also been featured on Fox News with Judge Napolitano and Neil Cavuto. And he's also written several books, uh, including An Encounter with Evil, The Kennedy Autopsy, Evil of a Nation, I'm sorry, Evil of National Security State, and Regime Change. Welcome to the show today, Jacob. Thank you, Rashad. Nice to be here with you. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. So um, recently, well, you ran as a presidential candidate um, during the last election against President Trump and Joe Biden. So I got to ask you, what made you run against President Trump, being that he is looked upon as being the anti-establishment candidate who was here to drain the swamp and take down the deep state? What made you run against such a popular figure like him? Okay, well, first, let me clarify the political scenario here, the situation. I ran for the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. Okay. And I had, of course, competitors. And when the final vote came down at the national convention, I lost that nomination. Uh, So somebody else got the nomination. They ended up being the Libertarian Party candidate that ran against Biden and Trump. Um, Gotcha. So so just to clarify that. But, but, you know, with respect to Trump, Trump was able to garner a lot of support in the Republican Party by targeting uh, disgruntled Republicans. Um, it, it was um, it was quite an interesting phenomenon because he was he was really challenging what have been established shibboleths in the Republican Party, well, in the Democratic Party too. Uh, for example, the CIA, the the Pentagon, the the perpetual foreign wars, uh, the um, to a certain extent, the FBI, he was mocking and ridiculing George W. Bush's invasion of, of uh, Iraq and the so-called WMD excuse that they used. Uh, well, this attracted the attention of a large segment of disgruntled Republicans, but it also attracted the attention of the Pentagon, the CIA, the FBI that said you know, they, they couldn't tolerate this type of thing. Uh, but I think that's why Trump was able to carry the carry the day uh, in the end, that all the, his competitors were playing the establishment game. They were playing um, the, the, the Pentagon's game, the CIA's game, and Trump wasn't. And I think that's what what ultimately was able it enabled him to garner this huge amount of disgruntled vote. Uh, unfortunately, after he took office, he ended up caving. He goes over to the CIA headquarters and he bends the knee and kisses her ring and swears loyalty. And he surrounds himself with generals and warmongers. And um, he refuses to pardon Julian Assange and, and Edward Snowden. So he ended up essentially in the same position. But, of course, they never forgave him. They're, they they targeted him in all sorts of ways to uh, to make sure he never got to be president again. Right. So I'm still trying to figure him out and um, 
I've been looking at the last um, or the new administration as well. And going back and looking at the Trump um, Trump years, a lot of people have said that he's the he was the best um, president since Reagan. We had the best economy under him. Um, he was able to some people say he did drain out the swamp. Um, in your opinion, how, how do you um, speak against those talking points? How do you refute those talking points? They're all ridiculous. Uh, Trump turned out to be no different from uh, from Biden and from the presidents that preceded him. Um, he, he turned out to be like a pointed out earlier, deferential to the national security establishment. He believes in the entire welfare state. The economy is this game that all presidents play, that if the economy is good, they claim credit. Oh, we're responsible for for managing the economy. And if the economy is bad, oh, it's the Federal Reserve's fault. Well, the fact is that a president really shouldn't be in the business of managing an economy. I mean, that's that socialist concept that the government needs to plan everybody's economic activities. Um, but to the extent that a, a president thinks he's managing the economy and bringing good times, that's ridiculous. It's usually the Federal Reserve that's manipulating interest rates. It's creating this boom cycle. And then, then inevitably the bust cycle comes and that's when everybody runs for cover. But if you look at his basic overall philosophy, Donald Trump, he's your standard Republican, which is pretty close to a standard um, Democrat. I mean, keep in mind, I'm a libertarian, so I see things entirely different from the way most people see things. These are people that believe in the welfare state. They believe in Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, education grants, farm subsidies. He started a trade war. Uh, they believe in sanctions and embargoes. They believe in the Pentagon, these foreign wars, the CIA, state-sponsored assassinations, indefinite detention, Guantanamo Bay. He kept that open, just like Obama kept it open. So from a libertarian perspective, there's really not any difference between Obama and Trump. Trump was just really the the, the next term of, of the Obama administration. Um, nothing changed in a fundamental way. Now, some people might say that's a very extreme statement because Obama, like the um, a Christian conservative would look at Obama and say he has some radical viewpoints, especially on gender and sexuality and social behavior and things like that. Whereas Trump, I mean, you know, Trump was pro LGBTQ as well, but wasn't extreme with his views. So how can you say that? They're both the same. Are you saying that they were the same in terms of um, philosophy, like political philosophy? Yeah, and economic philosophy. They okay. both believe in, in what the role of government should be. Now, they may have their own personal beliefs on gays or gay marriage or whatever, but they both believe fundamentally that the role of the state is to take care of people and to also to engage in these foreign wars, these coups, state-sponsored assassinations. Remember, it was under Trump that they assassinated that that um, that Iranian Soleimani. general. Yeah, Soleimani. Uh, yeah. I mean, this this was just out 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 and out murder. Uh, well, Obama was doing the same thing. Um, so what I'm saying is that in terms of philosophy. In terms of what they believe the legitimate role of government is in people's lives, they're on the exact same page. Okay. Um, 
So basically, Trump is not a uh, statesman or a uh, someone who is basing their philosophy on constitutional principles like like the founders. No, he, of course not. No, he's right. he's 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 your standard politician that wants power. Mm-hmm. And and that's what made also made him dangerous is that the guy was you could just tell that he thrived on the power. And mm-hmm. uh, he, he, there's no question but that he wanted another term so he that he could exercise that power. Uh, that's that's always dangerous when you see somebody that just loves power for power's sake. Um, and uh, it would be difficult to find a better example of that kind of person than Donald Trump. Okay. And the reason I'm asking is because I did notice that a lot of people did rally behind him, especially conservatives or people in the Republican Party, because they felt like this was the guy that was really going to make a change for the system and restore America to its uh, constitutional republic status. But according to what you're saying, he's just following in the footsteps of the big status or the people that promote big government. And um, I want to ask you about the uh, the lockdown, his policies on the lockdown or the I'm sorry, coronavirus. When the um, coronavirus um, or the pandemic uh, took place, he implemented a national emergency. And as a result, um, these lockdowns took place across the country. Would he be responsible for those lockdowns because of that national emergency order? Well, well, you know, this is the time-honored fashion by which – Government officials become tyrants. They, they they look for emergencies and crises. And by declaring a national emergency, that this was just standard policy of, of rulers throughout history, that as soon as there's a crisis, they want dictatorial powers. Uh, and they use the crisis as excuse. And that's why the, the framers at, who came up with the Constitution – and the people who demanded the Bill of Rights did not put a crisis exception in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights because they understood that crises are the are the times when rulers are, are most dangerous that because they demand these dictatorial powers. Now, before I answer your question directly, let's keep in mind that it was Trump that started the stimulus checks uh, that it, that, you know, here was uh Conservatives and, and Republicans like to think, oh, we're we're very fiscally conservative, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, look where the the national debt is thirty one, thirty two trillion dollars. A large portion of that happened during the Trump administration, and then he adds to that with these free stimulus checks. Well, we we're pointing out the Future of Freedom Foundation. They're not free. They're gonna you're gonna pay the price in terms of monetary debauchery down the road and. Sure enough, when people started paying more money for gasoline and groceries, that was the price of those free stimulus checks. Um, now, he set the tone, Trump did, and, and it was a tone that was continued by Biden, that we, we've got to prepare for this national emergency. Uh, and ultimately, most of the lockdowns and the, the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates were taking place at the state level. But he was setting the tone for all this. And, and it turned out to be an absolute disaster. I mean, this is the, these kind of things are antithetical to the principles of a free society. A genuinely free society would have said, this is none of the government's business. This is a health care crisis. What does government know about health care? They, they should have just butted out and stayed out of it and let people decide for themselves how to handle, how to handle the risk involved here. Let people do their own research. 
let them decide whether they want to use a mask, whether they want to take the vaccine. Let restaurants decide their policies. If they want a vaccine or mask policy, let them do it. That's their business. Consumers can vote to with their feet by going to another restaurant that doesn't have that policy. But that would have been the best way to handle this in terms of freedom. Instead, uh, it, it's an absolute debacle. And we, we can see this in China. China is essentially copying what Trump and Biden have been doing with respect to COVID. And now they're having to back down, just like U.S. officials finally had to start backing down. Now, when you mentioned the stimulus checks, and I'm going to ask you these questions, but I, yeah, I want you to explain the libertarian philosophy as well um, in doing that. But um, you talked about the stimulus check. So the average person might say, well, how are you going to support the people that aren't working or who were removed from their jobs because of this virus? How are they going to make money since they got laid off? Um, it, wouldn't that be a cruel thing to do to not give them some money in a time like that? Well, yeah, the, the government breaks your leg and then says, here, I'm going to give you a crutch. You know, oh, thank you. Thank you for providing me my crutch because of the leg you just broke. Uh, <laughs> that suppose I offered you a shot at deal and I said, OK, I'm going to give you a thousand dollar free stimulus check. But the first thing I'm going to do before I do that is I'm going to tax you $1,000. Now, I don't think you'd consider that really a great deal because I'm taking 1000 from you before I give you 1000 And that's what happens with government. Government has to get the money from someplace or somebody. Uh, and what happens with these kind of things is everybody's hoping that the money is taken from everybody else. It's essentially a war in which people are trying to protect their own pocketbooks from getting seized, their own income, but they're over here saying, give me the check, give me the check. Well, they didn't tax you for that stimulus check. Now, let's say the stimulus check just hypothetically was 1000 They didn't seize your $1,000 of income. So how do they pull off this magic fee? Where do they get the 1000 They're $31 trillion in debt. So, so, like, they didn't raise taxes. So how'd they do that? Well, it's clear that they just printed the money. They just printed that free money. And, and so everybody thinks, wow, this is a great magic act. Government's helping me out. It locked me down. I lost my job because of their lockdowns. But look how good they are. Well, when you debauch the currency that way, when you inflate the currency, the value of the currency is going to go down. Now, how, how much does it go down? Well, it depends on how much they print. But that diminution in value can only be reflected by prices, by the prices that money, uh, money, the, uh, the things that money buys. There's no other way. When your money's falling in value, that is going to be reflected by high prices of gasoline, groceries, healthcare, um, and, and all the others essentials. And the people who pay the biggest price are the poor. So this turned out to be not free money. You pay for it in terms of a diminution in the value of your money. And that's what happened here. Yeah. Um, I, when we had the lockdowns, originally I, I said to myself, how could this be possible where the government could basically order you to lock down or shut down your business? How I don't till this day, I'm trying to figure out how that happened, because it kind of looks like slavery to me. Like they can tell you you can't work. 
And that is your livelihood to be able to go out there and make a living for yourself. And the government can just tell you, you can't go to work today. How did that happen? Aren't there constitutional um, principles or um, laws in place where you can't do something like that? You can't just tell a business that they have to shut down because, you know, you may get sick, even in times of um, a pandemic or a virus. That's a fascinating question. Uh, there's no question that there's no constitutional authority for the federal government to do this. I mean, there's no constitutional authority for the government to be involved in health care. Now, keep in mind that when the Constitution called the federal government into existence, it, it called a government of limited powers into existence. And those limited powers were enumerated in the Constitution. The idea was if a power is not enumerated, you can't exercise it. And so to decide whether they have the power to do a lockdown at the federal level or a vaccine mandate, you go look at the Constitution. So do they have any authority to do this? No, they don't. So it's, it's, there's no question at the federal level they didn't have this authority. It's a little different from the state level, though, uh, that when the Constitution set, set the whole system up, it said the states shall have the inherent powers of government that have always existed. Uh, the, these come from the old European idea that, that government exists to provide for the health, safety, morals, and welfare. These are, these are called the traditional police powers. Now, the only exception to that is if there was an express restriction on the states in the Constitution, like one that says no state shall impair the obligation of contracts. Well, then the state can't do that. There was also the idea that states have their own constitutions that could restrict things. But ordinarily, a state can do these kind of things, at least under the original Constitution. Their state constitution might prohibit it. That would depend on the state. The point that we libertarians keep making is that the state should not have this power, uh, that it should be removed at, with a constitutional amendment, preferably at the state level, but even at the, at the national level, that when it comes to health, no government should be involved in this thing. People don't need government to be handling health care issues. It, this is for the health care industry. This is where people should make these decisions for themselves. And so when the state shut started shutting down businesses, I agree with you. I mean, this is the essence of tyranny. This is what's going on in China today. And I think everybody would agree that that's a tyrannical regime. Uh, whether it's constitutional or not, uh, it might well be constitutional. But my point is, is that whether it's constitutional or not, it shouldn't be happening. This is no business of government. You know, Rashad, our, our, our ancestors separated church and state because they felt like just religion was no business of the government. Now, this could mean that people don't send their kids to, to church. It means that people might not go to church. People might not worship God, may not believe in God. They're willing to accept that as a price of liberty. That's what we libertarians say with respect to health care is that just separate health care in the state at both the federal level and the state level where there's no mandatory lockdowns, there's no mandatory vaccine requirements, and where you let people voluntarily in a market process decide which way they want to go. That's what a genuinely free society would do. Some people say, would say that, well, during these lockdowns, um, I mean, some people willingly wanted to lock themselves down and were okay with uh, their businesses being shut down and staying home because they were afraid of the virus. They were afraid of getting sick. 
And I, I've talked to people that um, have no problem with it and, and felt like the government was justified in doing that. What do you say to those people that are that say, well, this virus is, um, you know, it's crazy and I could potentially die. So, yes, please lock us up so we don't get sick. What do you say to the people that support the lockdowns? I say that liberty is never worth trading for this pretense of security. I mean, what did it accomplish? I mean, they threw the whole economy into a tailspin. They bankrupted businesses. They caused so much unemployment. People lost their jobs. Some people lost their homes. They couldn't pay their mortgage payments. They couldn't pay their rental payments at their work. Uh, look, life is not a risk-free endeavor. We know that. I mean, bad things happen in life. Um, but then let people decide this for themselves. If, if everybody's got to weigh his own risk in a crisis like this. And so let's say somebody says, I'm not going into any restaurant. Okay, you sit at home, you get your groceries delivered to you. Um, that's your choice. Another person says, ha, I, I'm, I'm not scared. I'm, I'm going into a restaurant. I don't care. They, that restaurant down the, down the street, they don't even have a mask policy. I'm going to go there. Great. Okay, so everybody's assessing, assessing risk in his own way. Uh, some restaurants would say, might lock down. They might say, we're going to close down. We don't want to take any chances. Great. A free society provides for that. Another restaurant might say, we're going to have a mask policy. Great. Okay. Consumers might say, well, we're not going to patronize your restaurant. Or they might say, we're going to patronize your restaurant. This is how a free society works things out. Everybody is handling risk in his own way. One of my beefs with, with some libertarians is that they were communicating the idea that libertarianism is anti-mask and anti-vaccine, anti-closure of restaurants. That's just not true. Um, libertarianism is no more anti-vaccine and anti-mask than it is pro-vaccine and, and pro-mask. Libertarianism is simply saying leave people free to make these choices on their own. If they want to go out and wear masks everywhere, that's their right. If they want to get vaccinated, that's their right. If they don't want these things, that's their right. That's what the principles of a free society are all about. That's how people work it out in a free society. Is, is it perfect? Are there people that are going to get sick? Well, no, it's not perfect. Life isn't perfect. People die from the flu. I mean, we're talking about COVID, but look at the flu. Look how many people die from the flu every year. I mean, life is precarious, but government makes it worse when they destroy our freedom to deal with it. Yeah. One thing I thought was dangerous was um, I think when, when the pandemic or the virus first broke out, Trump made a speech and he said, we're battling an invisible enemy, <laughs> which um, which was the reason that he used for um, declaring the national emergency. And when I heard that, I said, man, that's that, that's pretty dangerous because now you don't even have to see the enemy. The enemy could be invisible and you can just put whatever laws you want to in place. And I mean, how do you detect a an invisible enemy? That's that's crazy. So that could be a justification for anything. Um, well, absolutely, absolutely. And, but you see, again, it, it's it's the crisis that gives them this temptation to do this, and and they may be very well intended. Oh well, I, I have to do this. I'm the president. I have to take care of my people and so forth. But this is the road to tyranny. That history has shown this time and time again that crises are the time-honored way by which people uh, lose their liberty. And there's good reason for this. People get scared in a crisis and they say, please keep me safe. 
I'm willing to trade my liberty just temporarily. Be sure to give it back to me after you take it away. Um, and then they, they make the trade and the government says, we're going to keep you safe. But then as soon as the crisis is over, they never relinquish the power that once the trade is made, it usually becomes permanent. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's like the saying, uh, you got to um, crack a few shells to uh, make an omelet, you know, um, moving on a little bit. Now we have Joe Biden in office. And for four years, I saw like just an excessive amount of complaining and outrage against Trump. I don't think I've ever seen that. I mean, I'm in my 30s. And I think the last time I probably saw that kind of attitude was during um, Bush, but it, it wasn't as extreme. Like this was just cr crazy. The the amount of outrage towards Trump, even on the on the media side, I've never seen the media just go after one person so much to the point where they even they even lie about people and you know um, bring up like propaganda and things like that. Um, so those people that were so outraged about Trump have now replaced him with the Biden. So my question is, after all that outrage, Biden has been selected as the solution to Trump. You said earlier that Biden and Trump are, in essence, basically had the same philosophy. Um, talk about how Biden has violated the constitution and how he is just as much of a, a tyrant as previous leaders. Well, keep in mind what I said earlier that, that see so your point about them going after Trump is, is very important. Uh, and the reason they had to do that, that the press and the people in Congress is because Trump had violated the sacred rule. Like I indicated earlier, you don't ever question anything the national security establishment does. They're effectively in charge. The Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA are the most powerful part of the federal government. They wield omnipotent powers. They can assassinate anyone they want, including American citizens, and nobody's going to do anything about it. They can, they can torture people. They can put people into jail for the rest of their lives without a trial, as they do at Guantanamo Bay. Nobody's going to touch them. Um, Trump made a point of challenging this. The, he was the first president. This was during his campaign. Uh, he was the first president to do so since John Kennedy. Uh, they had to make a, a, a lesson for him, out of him. They had to teach him a lesson. Don't ever do this again. This, this, is, this is the message that's being sent to every presidential candidate, that you will be like Biden. You will be like Obama. You will be like Bush. You will defer. You will never mock the, the military the, the, the intelligence establishment, you will you will play the game. Now, like I said earlier, Trump ended up caving and becoming one of them. He was absorbed by them, uh, but they never forgave him uh, and, and they still haven't forgiven him. They have to send a message. It's the same kind of message you're sending with their prosecution of Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. It's saying, don't ever go down the road. These two journalists have gone down because this is this is what will happen to you. Now, Biden, he, of course, would never do that. I mean, Biden defers to the Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA. He understands his role in this governmental structure. He's not going to buck them. Uh, he, he's going to be the, the good little president, the deferential president. Um, but his overall philosophy 
of deferring to the to the majesty of the national security part of the government, uh, supporting the welfare state way of life, uh, supporting the out of control federal spending and debt. I mean, look what he's doing. He, he's, he's spending money like there was no tomorrow. Well, so did Trump. Uh, what, what was the, the latest bill, the spending bill, $1.7 trillion? Where are they getting all this money? Uh, they're borrowing it. I mean, like I said, the national debt's now up to $31 trillion. They're both cut out of the same philosophical cloth. The only difference between the two of them is that Trump made waves against the national security establishment while he was campaigning. Biden has been deferential to the national security state and to the welfare state way of life his entire life. Yeah, he's um, definitely a company man. Um, you, you talked about assassination, the national security state, um, the Pentagon, CIA and assassination. You said that they can basically assassinate uh, American citizens with no due process, um, no trial by jury, just arbitrarily. Um, explain to me how that's possible in, in a free country. <laughs> yeah, it, it's incredible. And and before I forget, you know, when we're talking about the, how similar these guys are, and we can go into this later if you like, but I think it's worth pointing out that we're also dealing with the drug war here, which is a major, massive, deadly, bigoted government program. And they both are on the same page on this thing. I mean, Trump even said that, that recently that he, that he would execute uh, drug dealers and so forth. And so they, they're both on that same page. And you asked about give, give me some violations of people's rights um, by Biden. Well, there's a classic example is the drug war. But on this on this power of assassination, Rashawn, it's incredible. I mean, we all just take it for granted. It, it, it's it's one of the most amazing things in my lifetime, how deferential and passive Americans are to this power. Uh, because it really is a totalitarian-like power. You, you go to a communist country, North Korea, the government there has the power to kill its own citizens. And and if it does that, nothing's going to happen to the government. It doesn't have to give people a trial. And our, our nation started out with a completely different kind of system. Uh, it was a system in which the federal government was prohibited from killing people without a trial, without due process of law. That's what the Fifth Amendment enshrined that you will never kill somebody without due process. And due process encompasses a trial and formal charges and right to counsel and, and witnesses against you and so forth. Uh, the 14th Amendment took that principle and applied it to the state. So the states don't have the power of assassinating people. All that changed after World War II when the federal government was converted to from a limited government republic, which was our founding governmental system, was there for more than 150 years or so, and it was converted into a national security state. What's a national security state? Well, to put things into context, North Korea is a national security state. Russia, China, North Korea, and post-World War II United States. This is where one part of the federal government acquired the power to assassinate people, and that's the CIA and also the Pentagon. Uh, without even the semblance of a constitutional amendment. I mean, this is what a national security state is. It's the power, omnipotent power, totalitarian-like power. So they can snuff out a person's life and nothing's going to happen to them. The federal judiciary plays its passive role. 
Uh, the Congress plays its passive role. The, the president plays his passive role. Usually the president's on board with state-sponsored assassinations, uh, but he doesn't have to be. They can go out and assassinate anyone they want, including American citizens, and there's a nothing that anybody can do about it. If you sue them, the federal courts will throw you out on your ear. Uh, a good example of this is when they, the CIA uh, orchestrated the kidnapping and assassination of a of the a man named General Rene Schneider, who was the overall commander and general of the Chilean armed forces, a man of tremendous integrity, a man of tremendous honor, family man, he had wife and kids. They orchestrated, the CIA orchestrated his kidnapping and assassination. And when the family sued them for wrongful death in federal court, the federal courts just threw them out on their ear. They're not going to permit anyone to question or challenge the CIA's determination that somebody needs to be assassinated. They, the courts say, well, we just lack the expertise. That, that This is something way beyond our purview. We have to defer to them when it comes to things like national security. Uh, well, that's ridiculous because the Constitution doesn't provide for an exception like that on national security. The national security word is term is not even in the Constitution at all. Uh, but this is their power, Rashad. It's total power. Um, and, of course, there's the, the lesser included powers like torture, indefinite detention. They can hold a person in jail for the rest of their lives. That's what they're doing at Guantanamo Bay. No trial. Uh, they can torture people, including American citizens. And that was established by the federal courts in the case of Jose Padilla, where it says, of course, the Pentagon can torture Americans. Why shouldn't it be? National security is at stake. So was this written into law? The, these torture um, laws and these uh, the, the ability to assassinate people? No, uh, it was just assumed that this comes with being a national security state. For, you see, in 1947, they, call, they, they enact the National Security Act. That calls the CIA into existence. The CIA uses nebulous language in that law to say this gives us the power of assassination. Well, it, it, it doesn't even mention assassination. It just it's just really general nebulous language uh, that they construed to say we now have this power. And as early as 1952, uh, their, well, they already had an assassination manual in which they were training their agents in the art of a dark art of assassination. Now, that manual came to light in the 1990s. But it makes for eerie reading. You know, I would invite anybody who wants to read it, just go online and Google a study of assassination. And it makes some really eerie reading uh, as to how they were training people. And not only in the, in the dark art of assassination, but how to cover up the CIA's role in this, how to make things look like they were an accident, that type of thing. So, no, it, it was never expressly written into law. The power was just assumed and they used nebulous language as a way to justify it. So when they say national security, um, that can be used as an excuse for anything. There's no uh, specific details as far as what national security is. Like, like if they consider you a threat to the country, they could use national security as an excuse or a reason to assassinate you? Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up, that this concept of national security, we're all accustomed to it. I mean, it's become... I think the most popular term in the American political lexicon, 
national security, Jacob, national security, Jacob. Well, okay, tell me what national security means. <laughs> Nobody can define it. it. It's it's a totally meaningless term, but well, it comes with being a national security state. Our government's not the only one that uses this term. North Korea uses it. Uh, uh, Russia uses it. This this is a term that is inherent to a national security state. So you're right. Anything can be considered a threat to national security. And guess who determines whether something is a threat to national security? The national security establishment. They are the determiners of this. And since there's no definition of national security, it's entirely wide open. They they have the prerogative of determining whether something is a threat to national security. They have the prerogative and what they consider the duty to deal with that threat, to extinguish that threat that they consider a threat to national security. Um, I remember when Obama was in office, they passed the uh, National Defense Authorization Act. And I remember reading about a clause in there saying that uh, American citizens can be um, detained indefinitely, basically arrested um, with, with no trial by jury or anything like that. And uh, and I think assassinated, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the, how was the National Defense Authorization Act different from what was being done before? It was just codifying what was already in place. I mean, they, they don't they didn't need that law. Uh, they've been they've been exercising the power of assassination practically from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. The CIA assassinated Patrice Lumumba. This guy is the president of the Congo. He never attacked any American, uh, never attacked the United States. He's over in the Congo, and they decide he needs to have his life snuffed out. Think about the repeated murder attempts against Fidel Castro. Now, what did Castro ever do to the United States? Oh, they said, oh, well, it doesn't matter whether he did anything to the United States. He's a communist. He believes in communism. Therefore, we have the right to murder him. I mean, even Lyndon Johnson, who wasn't the paragon of virtue, called the CIA Murder Incorporated. Uh, and then wow. if you if you look at at what they did to Jose Padilla, this this guy was an American citizen, you know, accused terrorist. The Pentagon took him into custody and tortured him brutally. And and when on, on American soil, because you remember in the war on terrorism, the whole world's a battlefield. You see, this was another great big racket they had. Uh, they went from the Cold War racket where they were justifying these totalitarian powers and, and justifying the conversion to a national security state to the war on terrorism, which is an even bigger racket. And so they take Padilla into custody and we came to his defense, not because of anything he had done or who he was or whatever, because of the principle that we kept telling people, this is what they do. They, they bring up the most unsavory type of person and they use him as a way to establish the law, the legal precedent. So they were torturing Padilla. He gets a lawyer. He files a lawsuit. And the federal courts uphold. And, and so when, what applies to Padilla now applies to all Americans. This is what we kept telling people. This is why it was so important to oppose what they were doing to Padilla. Not because you, you coming to his aid or he's a terrorist or whatever. It's because of the legal precedent. That 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 case law with respect to Padilla, they can now do that to American citizens as well. Uh, there's the assassination of American citizens, um, Anwar al-Awlaki. Uh, this guy was an American citizen. 
they just snuffed his 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 life his out when his father brought a lawsuit saying, "Would you please stop them? Issue an injunction so they don't kill my son without due process of law." The courts threw him out on his ear, and um, and they ended up snuffing out his life. They snuffed out the life of his 16 year old son Abdul Rahman, uh, uh, and and so the. The law is established that the, the federal courts w- will just defer. They can they can assassinate anyone they want, and the courts are not going to get involved. This is not a free society. Now, you can say, but, Jacob, they're not really exercising the power widely. That's not the test of a free society. The test of a free society is whether they have the power at all. For 150 years, Rashad, they didn't have this power. It was only after the conversion to a national security state that they acquired this power. But doesn't that fly in the face of the Constitution? I mean, we clearly have a Constitution in place that's supposed to be the supreme law of the land. So how can they that, that contradicts that? You know, how how can they get away with these crimes if it's a clear violation of the Constitution? Because of their power. You see, once once the conversion took place, the judiciary understood that there was a new sheriff in town. Uh, that under a limited government republic, you had three branches of government, and you had a, a relatively small basic military force. Um, so the three branches of government were controlling and running the federal government. Once it got converted to a national security state, you end up with an entirely huge, all-powerful fourth branch of government. You get the Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA, uh, Everybody understood this is the real power of the federal government. I mean, government is force, and this is where the force was, the massive military establishment, the, the CIA with, with operating in secret, the power of assassination, the NSA, the power of engaging in mass secret surveillance. To a certain extent, the FBI, where J. Edgar Hoover was keeping files on people, secret files, blackmailing them into to complying with his will. So you end up with a federal judiciary that says, we're deferring to them. We're deferring to them, that we're not going to get involved here. So that conversion essentially nullified the Bill of Rights. It nullified the Fifth Amendment, uh, the the due process clause, the the clause against cruel and unusual punishments. You couldn't find a better example of a cruel and unusual punishment than torture. Uh, But what happened is they understood power. The federal judiciary, imagine if the federal judiciary, the Supreme Court, orders a commanding general to release somebody and the general says no. How's that? How's the court going to enforce its order as a practical matter? It's going to seem uh, send a team of U.S. marshals to the to uh, Camp Pendleton or Fort Pendleton or whatever, uh, where, where you've got massive military uh, establishment there, soldiers bringing the 82nd Airborne Division. What what what's that team of marshals going to do against that or a team of CIA assassins? The federal judiciary understood that there was a new new sheriff in town, and that's when they decided we've got, we can't have a constitutional crisis. We can't enforce our orders against this part of the government. We need to defer, and they've been deferring to the to the federal to the uh, national security establishment ever since. That's what happened, that when you convert to a national security establishment or a national security state, you automatically nullify the Constitution. And that's what happened. So in essence, it was kind of like a coup. Uh, 
in a way, <laughs> yes, um, because but a coup generally re- refers to a change in the in like the change in the in the president or right, change right. in the Congress. Here you had a change in the nature and scope of the federal government that gave the power of running this government, especially in foreign affairs, uh, to the national security establishment. So it's, it's not a coup in the technical sense, but in the overall general philosophical sense, it was certainly a tremendous change in power. Now, I'm not the only one who says this, Rashad. Um, there's, a, there's a man named Michael J. Glennon, who's a professor of law at Tufts University. And he was also uh, a counsel to the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This guy's got credentials. You can just Google Michael J. Glennon, and you can tell this guy knows what he's talking about. A few years ago, he came out with a book called National Security and Double Government. It's a profound book. It needs to be read by every American. His thesis is very simple. He says it is the national security part of the government that is running things, especially in foreign affairs. It's not the president. It's not the Congress. It's not the judiciary. They let them have the veneer of power. They let them act like everything's running normally, like it did for 150 years. Oh, the Supreme Court's, you know, interpreting the law. Oh, the Congress passes the laws. The president enforces the law. You know, all the nonsense we learn in civics classes. And it is nonsense. As Glennon points out, that what the people that are really running the government are the national security part of the government, the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA. And they let the other three branches have the appearance of power. So everybody feels comfortable. Oh, we've got our same system because they don't care about the veneer of power. All they care about is power itself. And that's what happened here. So Congress gave this power to them, correct? No, the change, the change brought the power. Uh, When the Congress enacted the National Security Act, bringing the CIA into existence, bringing the, the Pentagon, the vast military industrial complex in existence, the NSA in existence. The NSA comes into existence in 52. These are all the principal components of a national security state. Now, sometimes in a national security state, it's all in one, like Egypt. Egypt's a national security state. There, you don't have the three branches over here. You just have one huge military intelligence establishment running and operating the entire government. Here it's different. You have the three branches that are maintaining the appearance like they're in charge, but the ones that are really in charge are this national security establishment. Congress called these this institution into existence. They brought about okay. the conversion. But once the conversion takes place, Congress becomes secondary. In fact, when, when President Eisenhower was referring to this in his farewell address, it's a remarkable farewell, farewell address. It, it's a shocking farewell address. He referred to the military-industrial complex, but he, his first draft of his speech, he, he had military-industrial-congressional complex because Congress is owned lock, stock, and barrel by these people. Uh, they're not going to buck the, the Pentagon. They, they recently just gave them more money than they asked for. Uh, and and Eisenhower understood this, and he warned the American people said that, that this is a grave threat to our democratic processes. And, uh, of course, the warning fell on deaf ears. We, we're still living under this monstrosity. Mm. So just like how they 
provided for the creation or they basically created these agencies and wrote them into law, can't they withdraw that or take that back and uh, allow for these agencies to be dissolved since they created Absolutely. And that's what they should do. They should repeal the National Security Act of 47, which would get rid of the CIA. They would they could repeal the the National Security Law of 52. They can start downsizing the military. Now, don't forget that this comes with all these foreign wars. Afghanistan, you know, 20 year war, Uh, the uh, Iraq, where they decimated and destroyed these countries, Uh, Vietnam. Um, I mean, it, it, the, the list just goes on and on. Syria, Yemen, uh, this empire of foreign military bases. Uh, look how they've used NATO to gin up this crisis in Ukraine. Um, I mean, we're, we're perilously close to, to nuclear war, which, which is where they got us in 62. Also, this is not the first time the Pentagon has ginned up this type of crisis. They did the same thing back in 62 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, this is a, an alien form of governmental structure. And yes, Congress has the ability to dismantle it, but it can only come about through public pressure because, look, as soon as any congressman is going to even hint at bucking the Pentagon or the CIA or the NSA, the first thing they're going to do is target him with um, cancellation of military projects, pro- projects in his district or threaten to close a military base there. And then the local press goes ballistic and says, you're an ineffective congressman. Oh, he's costing us um, tax, you know, largesse here with our military structure. Because they, they put these military installations in every congressional district across the land so that they can threaten congressmen. You've also got a lot of veterans now in Congress, also so-called former CIA officials. They're never going to buck these people. The only way this can ever happen is if there is a revival of thinking among the American people uh, where we return to the sound founding principles of our country, especially a limited government republic, and they force Congress to dismantle this monstrosity. That's crazy. That's the true deep state, I guess. Um, Moving on, I do want to... Let me me interrupt you. That's a great point there, Rashad. This is the deep state. When people refer to the deep state, it's really just another word for the national security state. And and no, notice how they shroud the whole thing in secrecy. Everything's classified because they can't afford to have their secrets revealed to, to the American people or to the world. That's why they're going after Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, not because they lied, but because they disclosed the truth. They have to send a message as if our secrets are our secrets and we're going to do whatever we want and you better not reveal them or we're going to destroy you like we've done done to these two men. Right. And every president has basically upheld that system and um, hasn't really, I mean, challenged it legitimately. You said Trump spoke out against it, but he basically um, um, bowed down to them and and didn't really uh, put anything into place to like dissolve that. But um, I want to let touch me, on let me point out that one president did buck him, and that was John oh, Kennedy. Right. And I do want to touch on that. I wanted to talk about libertarian philosophy a little bit. Um, so the founders were libertarians. Right. Well, to a certain extent, I mean, you know, one of the massive violations of libertarian principles was slavery. And okay. so we have to we have to note that there there was also a violation of women's rights and there were other mm-hmm. violations. But 
if you look at the the positive side, the the the, the good f- founding principles of America, we know there were some bad ones, but the good ones. Yes, they were libertarian in that sense. They okay. brought into existence the, the most unusual society in history, setting aside slavery. But for everybody else, this was a this was a strange society. Nobody has ever seen this kind of society. In fact, if you go to let's jump to 1870, because by this time, slavery is over. 1870. Look at look at the kind of society they had. Now we're talking about libertarianism here. No income tax. No IRS. People were free to keep everything they earned, 100%. There was nothing the government could do about it. No central bank, Federal Reserve. No paper money. Gold coins and silver coins were the official money of the United States and had been for you know, 80, 90 years since the founding of the, of the United States. No drug laws. No immigration controls. People were free to come to the United States from all over the world. There was nothing the government could do about it. They came here. They were in. Um, no uh, gun control. Um, uh, let me see. No economic regulations to speak of. Uh, no minimum wage laws. No price controls. Um, there was um, no public schooling systems. Education was entirely private. That's what we talk about as libertarians. I mean, they to, to me that is the basis of what we're fighting for. That society in 1870, but it's but building on it. That's our that that for me is is your ideal to go for, but then build on that and 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 make it even bigger and better. Now, some people today would look at that as being a lawless society because they would say, "Where is government control? Where is gun control? Where is the government and healthcare and social security?" Like that sounds like anarchy to some people, right? But I, I do want to I want to ask you about the libertarian philosophy on on some things. Um, so let's start with uh, healthcare. You talked about healthcare. Um, government shouldn't be involved in healthcare. So the average person says, "How are the poor going to be taken care of? Um, what's going to happen if somebody doesn't step in to make sure this person gets Medicaid or medicine or some type of insurance? What, what, what's going to happen with that person?" All right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Social Security and Medicare because that's another thing that. In 1870, didn't exist. There was no Social Security, no Medicare, no Medicaid, no welfare at all. These are socialist programs. Our American ancestors at that time just rejected socialism. But let, let's start with Medicare. I grew up in the in the poorest city in the United States. That's that's what they told us when I was growing up. Laredo, Texas, right on the border. And uh, per capita income, we were we were the poorest. They told us uh, every day doctors' offices were filled. And many of the patients were from New Orleans, Laredo. And most of the patients, or at least many of the patients, could not pay. And and every doctor knew it. Uh, there is not one instance of where a doctor turned away any patient. They just handled it for free. And And even then, doctors were the second wealthiest people in town, second only to the oil people. They were making a lot of money off the people that, that were, were uh, paying. And they felt it was their ethical, moral duty to take care of the poor. This is what charity is all about. Uh, we had a hospital in town called Mercy Hospital. It depended on donations. They handled tons of poor people uh, for free. Uh, this is this is the real meaning of charity when it comes from the voluntary, willing heart of people. Uh, now, here's another in, in, interesting thing about this situation. 
Nobody had major medical insurance. They didn't need it because healthcare costs were so low and so stable. Going to the doctor was like going to the grocery store. Okay, You just pay your doctor bill just like you go pay your food bill at the groceries grocery store. Uh, we had the finest healthcare system in history. Doctors loved what they did in life. A lot of them were, would make house calls. Uh, innovations were taking place on an unbelievable level. Uh, and then comes Medicare and Medicaid. That's, that's the root cause of the crisis. That's what caused this, this, this enormous federal system that was totally unnecessary, uh, starts put, uh, putting an artificial demand on the system. Healthcare costs start soaring. Uh, that's the beginning of the crisis. Uh, doctors started hating what they do. They, they didn't want to hassle with it. They start retiring early. And, and this is the perpetual healthcare crisis. This leads to Obamacare, which still didn't resolve the crisis because nobody wants to acknowledge that the cause of the crisis is their beloved little socialist system. There's only one solution to this. Now, their solution is a full-fledged socialist healthcare system like they have in Cuba. Uh, in fact, some of them praise Cuba's healthcare system. That's going to accomplish nothing. The only solution, Rashad, is to restore that finest healthcare system in history by getting rid of Medicare, Medicaid, the FDA, the Centers for Disease Control. Like I said earlier, just get government out of healthcare entirely, and then you have a free market system working. Uh, you have that operating, and then you rely on doctors and hospitals and the healthcare industry to help people out on a totally voluntary basis. What we need to do is recapture a faith in freedom, a faith in, in ourselves, a faith in others, and for me, a faith in God. Uh, that's right. what characterized our ancestors. Okay, so, I mean, people today, a, a lot of people um, look at uh, socialism as, or they look at, I've heard um, family members and people say that, Oh, the healthcare system in um, Canada or Cuba or um, socialist countries is great. You know, the government takes care of you. I don't have to worry about being taken care of. And over here in America, the prices are are um, very high, and you know you can die from um, high healthcare costs, and you won't get taken care of. Why do you think that's a main talking point? I've never been to Canada. Um, I'm not familiar with the socialist countries and how healthcare works, but I, I keep hearing that the healthcare system is better in uh, socialist countries. Well, why do you think that is? Many years ago at the Future of Freedom Foundation, we published a book called The Dangers of Socialized Medicine. And one of our, it was a collection of essays, and one of them was entitled Free, but the patient never gets well. <laughs> And he was referring to places like Canada and other socialist um, areas where they have socialized health care uh, that you have this this illusion that it's better, but it's simply an illusion. But now, remember, I'm not defending America's health care system. I mean, there's soaring health care costs. I'm defending what was originally the finest health care system where there were no soaring health care costs, where everything was low and stable. But. If you take a place like Canada, they just have more of what we have over here. And there, if you, as I understand, and I'm no expert on the system, but that if you want medical care there, like an operation, you've got to wait like a few years that the lines for everything are a mile long. And, and this is characteristic of socialism. 
I mean, you, you always have long had, had long lines in the Soviet Union whenever they, they had other socialist projects uh, that were going on. Uh, and so that's what goes on in Canada. OK, they, let's say they, they provide the best heart operation in the world. I doubt it, but let's assume they do. If you got to wait five years before you get the operation, it may not do you any good. Uh, it, it's it, again, it's this faith in government. Uh, that's what we need to challenge here. You know, when we talked about earlier, Biden and Trump, they're on the same wavelength, Republicans and Democrats, because they both believe that government should be doing these types of things. They may argue over the variations, Obamacare, no Obamacare, and so forth, but they don't question whether government should be involved in health care. That's what we libertarians are doing. We're challenging that notion that government should be involved in healthcare, just like we challenge the notion about government being involved in religion. Uh, so we, we shouldn't be looking to Canada or Cuba, um, for, for healthcare. Our heritage is freedom and free markets. We ought to be leading the world. And the way we lead the world is to, to that, that vision of freedom and free markets is getting rid of Medicare, Medicaid, and all government involvement in healthcare. Mm. If healthcare costs were much cheaper before Medicare and Medicaid, why would they why would they bring about Medicare and Medicaid if, if the system was already working as it as it was? Why do you yeah, think? Yeah, exactly. Uh, why? Uh, most of it most of it goes to power. I mean, Lyndon Johnson was building on what Franklin Roosevelt had done with Social Security. Why they have to adopt a Social Security system? America had lived without Social Security for 150 years or so, or 125 years. People honored their mother and father on a voluntary basis. You had families taking care of families. There, there's no instance of people starving to death. Um, and yet, why they enact Social Security? It, it, supposedly, it was going to be a temporary measure brought on by the by the Great Depression, which had been caused by the Federal Reserve System. Uh, and yet here we are still saddled with this socialist system. And it is a socialist system, just like Medicare and Medicaid are. They originated mm -hmm. among German socialists at the turn of the uh, 19th century. Uh, but totally unnecessary. But in terms of government power, remember, we're living in an era, Rashad, where people were turning to government. Socialism was sweeping across the world in the early 1900s. Americans don't like to think of themselves as, as falling for this flood of socialism, but they did. That's what the, the New Deal was all about, the, the, the welfare state revolution. The welfare state is simply a variation of the socialist model. Instead of the government taking control over everything, it takes control over people's income and it redistributes them. That's, that's the Marxian concept. And so Medicare was just part of this this flood uh, of, oh, gosh, this is the siren song. Government's going to take care of us with free health care. And, oh, my, it was totally unnecessary. And in the process of doing this, they end up destroying this finest health care system in history. That's where health care costs, as I indicated earlier, start soaring. You yeah. wouldn't have soaring health care costs mm -hmm. if you didn't have Medicare and Medicaid. That's the root cause of the problem. Wow. And, and, and there's there's this illusion that they're going to fix the system. If they're just given enough power and enough reform and so forth, they're going to fix it. They will mm -hmm. never fix it. It'll only yeah. get worse and worse. So you talked about Social Security earlier. So, Jacob, how do you I'll 
bring up one of my relatives as an example. Let's say my grandfather, he's getting social security. If I was to tell him, grandpa, social security is socialism. And I believe, let's say I started, I ran for office and I said, I'm going to abolish social security. He would look at me like I'm crazy. Some people look at social security as being a way of the government saying, Hey, you know, to the, to the elderly, we're going to save some money for you and have some money set aside because you've been putting in all these years of work into the system. So when you get older, you don't have to worry. You don't have to work and we got you. We're going to take care of you. How do you respond to people who say, listen, what you're saying is cruel and, and that's not compassionate towards the elderly. How, how do you respond to that? I'd say, I say to them, oh, and you think the IRS is, is nice, virtuous, and compassionate? This is your definition of care and compassion, the Internal Revenue Service audits, the prosecution of tax resistors, the payment of taxes, that the Social Security Administration is the uh, paragon of virtue and care. It's ridiculous. We're talking about the force of government here. Now, I have no illusions about this. Anybody that is 65 or older that's on Social Security, maybe even 60 or older, they're not going to go along with this. They're not going to go along with repealing this, this fraudulent Ponzi scheme of a socialist program. They're on the dole. Once, once somebody goes on the dole, he's not going to give up his dole. Roosevelt understood this. He understood that once you get people on the dole, you've got them. And, and they're not going to make waves. I mean, remember, the baby boomers were the big anti-war protesters during the Vietnam War. They were the ones that got us out of Vietnam, really. Uh, they were the activists. This is when they were in their 20s and 30s. Today, they're on the dole. They're, they're, they're done. I mean, they're not about to challenge the government at a fundamental level because they're too scared that their dole will be terminated. The only hope for ridding our nation of this scourge, this socialist scourge, is younger people. And, and they've got to get over this sense of guilt where people say, oh, if you support the repeal of Social Security, you, you're selfish and you're self-centered and you, you hate your parents and grandparents. This is ridiculous that you take you, for example, you, you pay a, a considerable amount of money in FICA taxes. Uh, remember, there's no fund here. No, nobody puts his money into any kind of system. These are taxes. People pay taxes and those taxes are spent. And they're taking money from you and people in your generation, and they're, they're, they take, a, take it all to Washington. They deduct a huge amount to pay their salaries, and then they send it to your grandfather. Why can't you do that on your own? Why can't you brothers and sisters, if you've got brothers and sisters, do that? Why can't nephews and nieces help out grandparents and so forth and parents? I mean, that's what family values are all about. That's what our nation was founded on. I have absolutely no doubt. And that if Social Security were repealed today, everybody would be fine. Your grandfather would be fine. If, if you don't want to help your grandfather, there's church groups, there's, there's charitable groups, there's neighborhood groups, there's brothers, there's sisters, there's cousins. There's all kinds of people that come to the assistance of people in need. A lot of people on Social Security don't even need the money, Rashad. They're wealthy, and they get the money anyway, and, and uh, they don't need it. Uh, what I'm saying is leave all this money that's taken. Remember, government only gets its money from taxes. Leave all this money in the pockets of young people. Let them honor their mother and father. Why deny them that opportunity? Uh, and if they want to turn their backs on their on their parents and their grandparents, 
well, then we rely on others to help thee. But we, again, we've got to restore our faith in ourselves in freedom and get rid of this faith in the coercive apparatus of the government. Do people have the option to opt out of Social Security? Like if they say, I don't want my tax dollars going to Social Security, can can you do that now? Oh, that's a fascinating question. You know, when I was about 28, 29 years old and I discovered libertarianism and I, and I started to realize what a crooked, corrupt immoral scheme this socialist program was, I really came very close to to sending a letter to the IRS saying, I hereby waive permanently any any claim to Social Security when I get old, and therefore I'm not enclosing my Social Security taxes to you. <laughs> well, <laughs> fortunately, I got I got wise and decided not to do that. And no, you, you cannot opt out. You are forced to participate in this system. And by participation, you're forced to pay your taxes. And, and your taxes don't necessarily go to Social Security recipients. They can go to fund the war in Afghanistan or Yemen or whatever. It's just taxes. What they've cleverly done is create this illusion that when you pay your FICA taxes, it's going into Social Security like a fund. It's bull. It's a total fraud. That uh, They're just mm. putting all the taxes together. They spend the taxes, and 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 uh, it's a straight transfer program. Your, your grandfather's money that he paid in taxes was spent a long time ago. All they're doing now is seizing your income and the income of your generation and giving it to your grandfather and saying, this, this is all care and compassion. It is not care and compassion. It's essentially political stealing that they're calling care and compassion. Care and compassion is you. Your grandfather gets cancer and he needs help. That's where care and compassion comes into play. That's where you have the opportunity to take care of him and help him. That's the only meaning that care and compassion mm -hmm. genuinely has. So you could basically set this money aside for yourself and build up a, a retirement fund for yourself. Um, now, does yeah. that money – so, like, let's say I turn 65 and I end up living until 100 does that mean I'm going to keep getting money every month, even though, let's say, I may have paid into the system maybe a less amount? Will I get more money out of the system when I retire? Is that possible? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And th th huh. they'll just keep stealing from young people to to keep funding you. I mean, keep in mind that the, that the, <laughs> the, 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 no, the first Social Security recipients, the ones in the 1930s, they just started getting a check. They didn't. They didn't put their money in, which is the term that's used. Nobody mm. really puts their money into it at all. They just get taxed. You have to pay taxes. But those people didn't pay any Social Security taxes. They just started receiving money, and they got money for the rest of their lives, You know, wow. so-called free money. Well, it wasn't free. They were taxing people. Uh, but, yeah, and you know, and I hear young people. I mean, it's really a, a pathetic lament when I hear young people say, oh, gosh, Social Security is not going to be there when I get to be old. Well, yeah, it will be. All you got to do is vow to steal from your children. Make sure you have children, and and you're and you're going to use the government to steal from them or or your grandchildren. And and all you got to do is you may have to tax them sixty percent, seventy percent of their income. But so what? I mean, you have a right to retire, and you they're just going to have to suck it up. Uh, mm. That's the attitude. Uh, wow. Yeah, you you can you can live for a long time and live off this 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 largesse of this stolen money, and yeah. 
And again, they call it care and compassion. It's the exact opposite. Wow. Uh, moving on a little bit, we were talking about taxes. Why do we pay taxes if we have a Federal Reserve that cre can create money out of thin air? Why do we have taxes or why do we pay taxes? And what was our system like before the income tax? How, how did the government fund itself? Okay, that's a great question. Um, keep in mind, as, as I said earlier, that the only way government can give money to people is to first collect money from people. And the, it does that with taxes. So if it wants to give you a grant of $1,000, it'll come and seize my $1,000 in order to give you the $1,000 because it's got no other way to raise money. I mean, that's the only thing. Well, it can borrow, which is a separate separate facet of this, but if it borrows, it still has got to pay the money back. So ultimately it's got to tax $1,000 to give you $1,000. Well, what happens is that government expenditures inevitably start exceeding what is collecting in taxes because government officials love to spend money. We have welfare expenditures. We have warfare expenditures. The Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA, they're voracious. They want more and more and more. You've got their army of so-called defense contractors. Uh, they're asking almost a trillion dollars a year now. Uh, so what does the government do? Well, Theoretically, what it ought to do is just raise the taxes uh, so that, let's say, it's collecting a million dollars in taxes. And all of a sudden, expenditures go to two trillion, uh, let's say, uh, one trillion, and now expenditures go to two trillion. Okay, then raise taxes, two trillion. So now you got expenditures equal tax revenues. But you see, people get mad when their taxes are being raised. And, and it gets to the point where government officials know that this is not a good thing, especially at election time, because people tend not to vote for people for reelection when they're raising taxes to such a significant extent. So what the government does is starts borrowing the money. And so that extra trillion, they just go out and start borrowing it. And, and then the next year they borrow another trillion. And then the next year they borrow another trillion. Well, ultimately, that debt's got to be paid off. And that's where the Federal Reserve comes in. They start printing the money to pay off the debt uh, because what an easy thing to do. <laughs> you just print up the money and, and then nobody knows what's going on uh, except libertarians that all of a sudden you suddenly you see prices rising. Well, that's odd. Gasoline prices are soaring. Food prices are soaring. Uh, used car prices are soaring. New car prices are soaring. Prices are soaring across the board. And who are the bad people? Oh, the bad people are the ones raising their prices. You know, they're the greedy, mm. evil, profit-seeking capitalist swine. The oil come big oil. They're raising their prices. Well, it, it's it. None of that is true. That what's happening is the value of the money is being reflected by these higher prices. Like I said earlier, the the money is being debauched by by inflating massive quantities of it, printing new quantities of money. But it's a beautiful scheme from the standpoint of government officials because nobody knows what's going on. They don't realize the government's behind this scheme. Uh, so you, you ask, why can't they just print the money? They can. They can just print the money. In Zimbabwe, I mean, the, I, the, it was like their banknotes, uh, their their paper money was like $7 trillion or whatever their, their unit of currency was uh, because you, you just keep printing and printing and printing. Uh, and so it's a very, very bad system. 
So how did things work before this, uh, the, before this system? Well, you had no income tax and people were free to keep everything they earned. How did government collect its money? They used what were called indirect taxes, like tariffs, uh, taxes on imported goods or excise taxes, taxes on booze or whatever. But the amount collected was very minuscule because hardly anybody cared because they were keeping everything they earned. There was the government's expenditures were minimal. Remember, there was no social security, Medicare, Medicaid, welfare. There were no foreign wars, no CIA, mm -hmm. no NSA and all that stuff. Then they also established a system of sound money. There was no federal reserve. They, they refused to let a central bank come into existence and they didn't let paper money come into existence. The constitution expressly said, Gold coins and silver coins will be the official money because you can't print gold coins and silver coins. And and the founding fathers understood inflation. They understood that that governments had printed money and destroyed currencies um, from since Gutenberg invented the, the printing press. They'd had experience with the, the continental currency in the Revolutionary War. So they said, we want gold coins and silver coins as our official money. And that was our official money for more than 100 years, 125 years. It's often said that we had a system of paper money backed by gold coins. That's nonsense. Our system was gold coins and silver coins. There was paper notes, bills of indebtedness and so forth. But everybody understood those, those instruments of indebtedness were promises to pay gold coins and silver coins. That was the official money until the 1930s when Roosevelt unilaterally brought it to an end without even a constitutional amendment. So that's and, and so you, when you combine these things, Rashad, no income tax, sound money, open immigration, no welfare state, um, you have the most unbelievably prosperous society in history from that period, 1870 to 1915, real wages of workers doubled. Not inflationary wages, real purchasing power doubled in a 20-year period, and then they doubled again. It, nobody mm. had ever seen such wealth before. Uh, that's why people were flooding in, into America from the rest of the world. Everybody wanted to get rich, and people yeah. were getting rich. And the sound money per, was a major reason for that because people didn't have to worry about getting their, their income seized through, uh, through, in, through inflationary debauchery of their currency. That's a wow. great system. And wow. Americans had it. And what I'm trying to say is Americans had invented a way to end poverty. And, and that mm -hmm. was the that was the great contribution America made. This is the way to raise people's standard of living. And unfortunately, that lesson has been lost. Well, I mean, if that's the way that government is being funded now, I mean, that doesn't seem like a sustainable um system because it's like, you know, if I want to go and buy a new car and I go into debt every time I want to buy something, like if I want to buy groceries, I go into debt, go borrow money over and over again. Eventually I'm just going to be up to my head in debt and I'll, I will be poor. So, you know, I've been hearing that our system, the monetary system is going to collapse, collapse because we're, we're in trillions of dollars of debt. And I just wonder how long does it continue before we do see that that uh, collapse that has been talked about? Because I mean, I mean the the debt is ridiculous right now. It's crazy. I just wonder that, how how much longer we have. That is a fascinating question, and no one can yeah. ever tell. Yeah. But but if you keep on this trajectory, it's going to end very badly. 
uh, yeah. just a question of when, as you point out. But you can you can you can look to other nations to see what's going to happen. Like several years ago, Greece got into this position. Uh, they they went into such high debt that their tax revenues could no longer even cover the interest on the debt. And that was when the whole jig was up. I mean, everybody understood it's over. Uh, they're essentially bankrupt. Uh, now, the United States gets away with a lot because despite all the taxes and regulations, you still have a very productive private sector. Uh, and and it produces a lot of wealth that the government can then tax and seize. But in the process, they keep adding to this debt, $31 trillion. It'll soon be $32 trillion. You raise a very interesting question. How long can this go on? Nobody can know the the, the timing is is always questionable, but it cannot go on forever. And it could be tomorrow when when the thing kindly the crack up happens like it did in Greece. It, it could be a year from now. It could be two years from now. You just don't know. All you know is that this if it keeps on this way, it's going to end very, very badly. Yeah, I guess I got a, look, a lot to look forward to when I get older. Um, so moving on a little bit. You, um, I, I want to get your position on, um, oh, you talked about open borders. So some people, I mean, you hear a lot of talk about securing the border, even when Trump was in office, he won one of his, um, main talking points was to secure the border and put some border fences up and prevent illegal immigrants from coming in. Why would you want a country to have open borders? Uh, explain that to me. Well, first of all, keep in mind that this is one of the, the, the similarities between Democrats and Republicans. Earlier when we were talking about how they're on the same page philosophically, they both believe in this system of immigration controls that we have here. And uh, th there are variations on it. Trump wants to build a Berlin Wall. The, uh, the Democrats want to build a Berlin fence. So that there's variations. But overall, they both believe that the role of government is to secure the border. Now, the, the Trump people in the GOP says, oh, Biden believes in open borders. He look at all the people that are coming across. That is so ludicrous. They don't understand the concept of open borders. Um, you've got a massive border patrol presence in, in the uh, along the border. You've got the Immigration and Customs Enforcement ICE. Uh, you've got warrantless searches of ranches and farms along the border, the highway checkpoints, fixed highway checkpoints, a roving border patrol checkpoints, boarding of Greyhound buses to check people's papers. I mean, on and so, on. You got a you got an immigration police state down there. That is as far cry from open borders as you can get. Open borders is abolishing the, the border patrol, abolishing ICE, abolishing all restrictions on the the free movements of goods, services, and people crossing back and forth across borders. That, that's what we libertarians favor. That's how different we are from Democrats and Republicans. Now, I grew up on the border. I, I spent almost half my life on the border. I know border culture. I've seen this crisis, Rashad, all, uh, you know, most of my, well, the entire time I was there, and I've seen it ever since. I've seen people, um, the people dying as a result of this system in the backs of 18 wheelers of suffocation, drowning in the Rio Grande, uh, you know, dying of thirst in the American Southwest, dying at the hands of a bullet fired by a bullet uh, border patrol. This is all part of a system that is what really can only be called a socialist immigration system. 
Now, why do I say socialism? Well, because this system is based on central planning, which is a core principle of socialism. The government thinks it has the requisite knowledge and expertise to plan, centrally plan the movements of millions of people in a very complex labor market. It can't be done. Central planning produces what the libertarian economist Ludwig von Mises called planned chaos. I mean, what a great term. That's what you have on the border, planned chaos. You've got a perpetual crisis. This crisis is rooted in this system of immigration controls. This is what socialism does. It produces the crises. If you want to get rid of this crisis, you often hear, oh, well, what we need, Jacob, is comprehensive immigration reform. It's ridiculous. I've been telling people this for more than 30 years now. There is no such thing as comprehensive immigration reform. Every is one of the most ludicrous terms that every time they enact a new reform, like making it illegal to hire illegal immigrants, things get worse. No matter what they do, it gets worse because it is their system, their socialist system, that is the problem. There's only one solution to this. There is none other. Now, now, let me just hammer this home because I've told people this for 30 years, and unfortunately, all too many people still don't believe me. There is only one solution to this crisis, none other, and that's open borders. If you open the borders today, there would be no crisis tomorrow. People just go would flow back and forth. You wouldn't know who was a citizen, who wasn't a citizen, uh, and, and nobody would care any more than they care today. I mean, here in Virginia, you know, when I see a person at McDonald's speaking with an accent, I don't go and say, are you a citizen? I don't care. Nobody cares. <laughs> and that's the way open borders work. We had open immigration for more than 100 years in this country. This is our heritage. Uh, all of, In the American Southwest, People were flowing back and forth, retaining their citizenship, coming over here, touring, visiting, vesting, or whatever. Remember that that Texas and, and California and New Mexico and Arizona, they'd all been the northern part of Mexico before the United States essentially stole the northern half of the country. So, was, so people felt very comfortable coming back and forth. That's the only solution. That's interesting. Um wouldn't you say, though, that or, I mean, how, how do you respond to people that say, well, that's dangerous to leave your border open because you can have all types of people coming in and um, your enemies could be coming through the country and bringing in drugs or all types of dangerous materials? How, how do you protect your country or how, how can you isn't establishing a border a way of also establishing your country by having defined lines or a defined territory? to let the world know this is our country? Absolutely. And, and one, of the, one of the misconceptions about open borders is that they say, well, libertarians want to abolish borders. No, we don't. We, we, we love the border. We just want people free to cross it. But the border stays. Consider the United States. We have the, the biggest open border system in history, geographically, here in the United States. People are free to cross borders domestically. There's no checkpoints. Nobody's checking. Every day, hundreds of thousands of cars come in from Maryland into Virginia. I don't know how they know this, but they say that it's like hundreds of thousands of vehicles. Well, that's a lot of people. And, and yet we don't 
we don't get all concerned about it. Oh my gosh, all these people are flooding into into um, Virginia. They could be terrorists. They could be bringing COVID. They could be trying to destroy our state. It's just normal because we've all been born and raised under this system. If we had been born and raised under a system of open borders, uh, open immigration, like our American ancestors were, remember we, we had a system of open immigration for more than a hundred years. Uh, then nobody would raise any questions about it. The only reason we raise questions today is because we've all been born and raised under this immigration control system. Um, you keep the border and people are free to cross it. They retain their citizenship. There's no reason why somebody needs to become an American citizen. They can apply to, for citizenship if they want to, but they don't have to. They come, let's say that, that, work that farmers in Washington state suddenly need people to harvest their crops. They raise their prices for workers and workers in Mexico hear about it and say, Oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. They get on a bus and they go into Washington. They harvest the crops they make a lot of money. They return to Mexico. What's the problem? Uh, we all know that foreigners come here to tour like summer vacation. Nobody gets all bent out of shape because, oh, my God, we got too many vacationers here, Jacob. <laughs> people are making too much money. Well, just extend that out. There were people are free to just come here, get their luggage at the airport. They just walk through and they, they visit, they tour, they invest. Nobody knows who's a citizen except on Election Day when people are checking your ID. But in terms of everyday life, it's a harmonious system. Open immigration is the only system that is consistent with religious principles. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Economic principles, it's, it brings a vitality and energy to an economy. Um, I mentioned the period of 1870 to 1915. They had an open immigration there. It's one of the reasons there was tremendous prosperity. Immigrants and open immigration is not a burden to a society. It's an asset to a society. It brings prosperity. Uh, so, again, the thing is, you know, we've got this national headache where people have been hitting their, cell, their head up against the wall all my life on this immigration issue. The only way to get rid of that headache is to stop hitting your head, head up against the wall and go for freedom. And freedom means open borders. When people talk about the uh, immigration debate, um, I often hear that, well, illegal immigrants are depressing the wages of Americans. So when illegal immigrants come here, they're willing to get paid less than Americans. And so you have these American business owners that are willing to pay illegal immigrants um, lower wages, which then takes away jobs from Americans. And they say that's a result of illegal immigration or open borders. So, I mean, how do you, how do you refute that? It's nonsense. It does the exact opposite. Uh, now, in the short term, uh, it's very possible that uneducated immigrants are going to come into a, a farm and work for less than what well-educated high school graduate Americans are, are willing to, to, to receive to harvest that crop. And so they say, okay, you've displaced those workers. No question about that. Okay. That, that lower paying immigrants, uh, uneducated people might displace people at the very bottom of the economic ladder. And let's say they do. Is that the end of the story? Does that mean that those American high school graduates that they've displaced are now going to start starving to death? If they're going to have to go out and make 
you know, settle for starvation wages? Uh, no, the exact opposite happens. What are these immigrants doing? Well, they're now living here, which means they need a car. So they go out and start buying cars. They need clothes, clothes for themselves and their children. They go to the retail stores and start buying clothing. Uh, as they start doing better, they, they go start going to the movies. Well, this creates demand in these other sectors. That means those sectors need to hire somebody to satisfy this. You know, Walmart says, oh, my gosh, we've got an influx of customers. All these immigrants are in here buying. We need to hire people. Who are they going to hire? They're not going to hire the immigrants because the immigrants are uneducated. They don't understand the work ethic at Walmart. They're going to hire those high school graduates that were out there harvesting those crops, and they're going to pay them more money. And so while the, the worker, the American thinks, oh, this is really bad, I've got displaced, he all of a sudden finds there's greater opportunities as a result of this phenomenon. And historically, mm -hmm. that is exactly what happens, that the division of labor ends up making everybody more prosperous. It may not seem like it at first when somebody loses their job, but all of a sudden, a month later, when they've got a job that's paying them much more than they were receiving before, they say, you know what, life's pretty good after all. Yeah. And what about people coming through the border like um, enemies of our country or people that uh, may want to do harm to the country? How, how would you protect against that? Well, the first, an open thing, border? well the first thing we need to do is, is, is stop making enemies. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there, there's a reason why we've had to grow up with anti-American hostility. And that's because of the Pentagon and the CIA and their foreign policy of foreign interventionism. Uh, that this notion that the terrorists came to attack America because they hate our freedom and values has been a lie from the very beginning. And it continues to be a lie. The reason that people are angry at the United States and the American people is because you've got a federal killing machine that is out there been killing people overseas and, dis and, and destroying their, their systems with coups and alliances with dictatorial regimes. Um, remember, there was no terrorist problem throughout the 19th century because the, the federal government didn't go abroad and do these kind of things. So once you do that, there are no more enemies here that want to do us harm. The re only reason people want to do us harm is because they're retaliating for what the Pentagon and the CIA are doing. But if somebody wants to do harm, Rashad, you're not going to stop them. If they want to come in here and blow up a building, you, unless you have a totally sealed border, which is what, what some people want, you know, that's what that Berlin Wall is all about, you can't stop people from doing harm. They, they may come over here on, a, on a, a work visa or a study visa or whatever. If somebody's intent on doing harm, they're going to do the harm. What happens is that people use this fear as the excuse to, to close everybody out. 99% of people that come into the United States, they just want to improve their lives. They, 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 they have vitality, they have energy, uh, they have family values. So we're going to keep out those 99% because we're concerned about the 1%, which you can't keep out anyway. Uh, that's ridiculous. I mean, that... You never should trade your liberty for the pretense of security because you're not going to get either one. You're not going to get the security. Somebody's going to do you harm. going to get in one way or another. And then you're, you're, you've destroyed the liberty of free movements of people and freedom of association, liberty of contract, and so forth. It comes with open borders.
Last question on that topic. I just have a few more questions before we wrap up. But um, can't you change the culture of a country if you allow um, open immigration or unrestricted immigration? Like if we have a culture of constitutional principles and then you have you bring in a certain group of people from another country that doesn't have that culture and you flood this country with that group, can't you over time maybe change end up changing the culture of that country that they're um, coming into. Absolutely. Because, and, the reason, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, I have friends and I know people that come from other countries and they don't understand the American system and they don't understand American history and they end up voting a certain way, um, actually against the American principles and the constitutional principles because they don't have that culture. So wouldn't you say like an open border would... Um, would allow for that? Absolutely. That, that risk always exists. But now keep in mind that we had open immigration for more than 100 years. And and it, that's, a, that's a long time for a system to last. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's so difficult to change the Constitution. I mean, there's an amendment process. It's extremely difficult to get that amendment process through. You got to go through, I forget what, three quarters of the states. And that's after Congress has approved it. And it's a very, very difficult process. Uh, usually what happens is the first generation comes in with their ideas, but they start having children and the children become Americanized very quickly. They can become absorbed into the American culture so that rather than changing the culture, they become part of the culture. But there's a diversity. I mean, this is this is what has always been so great about this melting pot concept. You've got... New Orleans, which they have the French influence there. You've got New York City that's got Little Italy and mm -hmm. you know, all the other little things about uh, New York City that are so different. You got the border culture. You've got um, San Francisco with the Asian culture. Um, I mean, the Southwest culture. I mean, that's what's great about freedom is you have this huge diversity of culture, but it's not enough. Uh, to change the real identity of a nation that what ended up happening is the first generation keeps speaking the native language and, and they, they speak with an accent by the time the third generation comes about, they are totally Americanized. And that's been the experience the, of the American uh, experiment since, since the founding of the country. Mm. There's, there's parts of um, this country. I know like where I live, um, there's specific cities where, People speak um, Spanish. They barely speak any English. I mean, I've worked with people that don't speak any English and they, they can't communicate with me. I can't communicate with them. I remember I used to live in Miami or go to school in Miami. And there was times when I couldn't get a job because I didn't speak Spanish, even though I'm in America. <laughs> so, I mean, that shows me like, you know, you can come here and basically develop your own subculture in a sense. And you don't even have to assimilate. I actually have to assimilate to you, which is crazy. Well, you don't have to. I mean, you don't well, have to. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it, you, you take like Americans. There's more than a million Americans that have retired in Mexico. Most of them are not assimilating. They don't learn Spanish. Right. They eat hamburgers. They root for American sports teams. Uh, they send their money back to the United States. Um, who cares? I mean, yeah. you know, I don't care. I, I told you earlier, I grew up in Laredo. I was a, I was a lawyer there 
the jury panels would be summoned at random. And when the, when the jury panel would come in, the judge would determine how many were qualified to serve as jurors. It was around 25, 20 to 25% of the jury panel would raise their hand when, he, when the judge would ask, who here cannot read or speak the English language? 20 to 25%. I mean, this is more than 100 years after the, the United States steals the northern half of Mexico, and there's still people who cannot speak or write English. Who cares? I mean, I don't care. Uh, they they obviously are getting along. They survive. We we had a nanny growing up who who just passed away a, a year or so ago. She was around ninety one. She never spoke English. She she always she was an American citizen. Her parents had been illegal immigrants. She had been born here. She never learned English. You know, I say just leave people alone. They'll they'll figure out what they need to know and mm. they'll learn what they need to do. But that's what freedom's all about is you speak whatever language you want. This notion that we have to force people to speak English or or Americans in Mexico need to be assimilated and learn Spanish. I, I just don't buy it. I say just leave people alone to live their lives mm. the way they want. Gotcha. A um, few more questions. How do you view Israel and America's relationship with Israel in terms of um, foreign aid to Israel or the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict? Terminate foreign aid immediately. I mean, foreign aid is just a crooked, corrupt form of bribery. Um, there's nothing compassionate about it. Again, it's, it's like any other welfare state program. It's a welfare for foreign regimes. <coughs> Excuse me. The government taxes Americans and sends the, the dole to these foreign regimes. So libertarians want to terminate all foreign aid, not just to Israel, but to every government. The, the federal government should not be providing a dole to anyone. Now, if Americans want to donate to Israel, great. I mean, there, there's there's huge Jewish fundraising drives to to help out uh, the Israeli government, to help out Israeli people, the Israeli people, the citizenry. Great. That's, again, like I said earlier, that's what Karen Compassion is all about, where people are using their own money to help out others. But other than that, stay out of it. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm at the Future of Freedom Foundation. We, we've made it a policy to not focus on what the, what the problems are in other countries. We, we like to focus on the United States. Um, but from a straight libertarian standpoint, I, I don't think there's anything inherent that about the fact that Jews can't live with 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 Palestinians, Arabs, uh, Muslims, or whatever. I mean, they they live together here in the United States. Uh, so there, for me, it, it, there's absolutely no reason why this this can't take place in Israel. Now, I understand that Israel wants a Jewish-controlled government. Fine, have a constitution that says that the, the principal uh, components of the government will always be filled by Jews. Uh, but every guarantee everybody equal rights, the rights of private property. Where you, let's go back to nine, um, nine, um, 1870 to 1915. Let's put that kind of society in place in Israel, but with a Jewish-controlled government. My hunch is that Palestinians would eat it up that here they are and able to engage in business, own businesses, support their families, um, make money. Uh, 
and okay, so the the government is run by by Jews. I don't think that would be a big deal to a Palestinian that right now is eking out a very horrific existence. Uh, that who's in charge doesn't matter as long as you've got the right to live your life the way you want, and support your family, make a lot of money and engage in economic commerce and travel wherever you want and so forth. That to me, libertarianism to me is the only solution to that crisis. Hmm. I'm, um, I think I heard you say in an interview that um, John Quincy Adams, I think he, he stated in his farewell address that America goes not abroad to uh, seek monsters to destroy. And you were talking about America just minding our business pretty much and not creating enemies. A um, couple more points I want to touch on. You wrote a few books about JFK, and I was reading an article that you wrote about uh, why JFK's assassination matters. And in that article, um, it was some disturbing things that I, I read. And it just it really, it's really disturbing and worrisome. Um, and you talk about when um, originally when they were investigating his death, the people that thought that there was um, involvement from the government were labeled conspiracy theorists. And um, you, you stated that later on, it ended up coming out that the autopsy, there was fraud in the autopsy of JFK. And the only people that could have been responsible for conducting that fraud would have to be the president at the time who was Lyndon Baines Johnson or the government. Um, how, how could you get away with conducting a fraudulent autopsy of a president at that? You get away with it by keeping it secret. And that's what they did. They shrouded that autopsy in secrecy. They swore everybody to secrecy. They, um, they, they made them sign written secrecy oaths. And the, the thing the, the dam started to break loose a little bit in the 1970s, but only to a small extent. But it totally broke loose in the 1990s. Uh, that was 30 years after the assassination when everything broke loose under the Assassination Records Review Board. Um, and when that broke loose, that established what they had done 30 years before in conducting a fraudulent autopsy. They got away with it because they were able to keep a secret for so long. And by the time the 1990s comes along, they're in control. They're control of the federal government. They're essentially in control of the mainstream media. The mainstream media doesn't want to touch the Kennedy assassination. They're scared to death of it. And so they got away with it through secrecy. Now, I wrote a book called The Kennedy Autopsy, and it details what happened as part of this fraudulent autopsy. Uh, they, they, uh, this was just a few hours after the assassination. I have repeatedly emphasized there is no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy. Now, up to that point, people could get away with saying, oh, well, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, um, because there was no real solid evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that they had done this. Once the fraudulent autopsy got established, that was it. It was over uh, that because there is no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy. No one's ever come up with one. No one ever, ever <laughs> will. Uh, and this is just a few hours after the assassination. So the fraudulent autopsy had to be part of the assassination itself. There is no other explanation for that. Hmm. Uh, so that's why 
I keep emphasizing this. I emphasized it in my book, The Kennedy Autopsy. I wrote a subsequent book called The Kennedy Autopsy 2. And then my newest book is An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zabruder story that deals with the famous Zabruder film of the assassination. But I have chapters in there detailing the fraud that took place on the autopsy. I don't know whether we have the time to go into what those fraudulent aspects are, but people can buy those books. They can go to the Future Freedom Foundation's website if they don't want to pay the money and just Google fraud autopsy because I have a number of articles detailing what they did. And once you reach that conclusion, Rashad, that this was a fraudulent autopsy, you've got nowhere to go. The only conclusion you could draw is that this was a national security state regime change operation. This is one of their storied assassinations. And it, also in that article, you talked about how the um, the state, um, I don't know, I'm forgetting the title of him, but the, the person that was performing the autopsy, I think his name was Mr. Rose. Um, you said that the, I think there were agents from, I don't know what, what agency it was, if it was the CIA or the NSA that came to the hospital or where he was performing the autopsy and they took Kennedy's body out of the hospital and like basically forcibly removed this guy from performing the autopsy. Okay. Here's what happened. Uh, Kennedy is declared dead at, at Parkland hospital in, in Dallas, Texas, about 1 PM state law provides that, when there is a murder, and this was a straight murder case under state law, uh, at that time it was not a, f- a federal offense to assassinate the president. It was a straight murder case. And state law says that in any murder case, the, the local county examiner, the medical examiner, has to conduct an autopsy. No way around that. That's just mandatory law. And an autopsy determines the cause of death. And it's extremely important. It's often called the best evidence. Uh, it's 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 often used in a, in a court of law. People are accustomed to seeing that in crime shows on on TV. So Dr. Earl Rose was the Dallas County Medical Examiner, very prof- uh, efficient, professional medical examiner. The, the, the man has become somewhat renowned. Um, he's no longer alive, but but he became a, a very very renowned medical examiner. He announces. I'm going to conduct the autopsy here. As soon as Kennedy's declared dead, he has to. This is state law. At that point, a team of Secret Service agents headed by a man named Roy Kellerman goes into action. Kellerman's holding a submachine gun. He says, oh, no, you're not. You're not going to touch his body. We're taking this body back to Washington, and I'm operating under orders. Now, Rose stands his ground and says, oh, no, you're not. This is state law. I have to conduct this autopsy. Kellerman says, out of the way. And, they, and, and they're screaming and yelling, the, this team of Secret Service agents. They're, they're uh, screaming profanities. The nurses and doctors were, were terrified. They, they, they couldn't understand what was happening here. I mean, this is a pretty unorthodox thing. And they said they were terrified that somebody was going to get shot because the Secret Service agents now – pull back their coat pockets to brandish their guns. So it looks now they're prepared to shoot Earl Rose and shoot anybody that gets in their way. They physically pick up Rose, one agent does, takes him over to a nearby wall and wags his finger in his face as if saying, 
get out of our way. So they pushed their way out of Parkland Hospital without permitting an autopsy to be conducted. They take the body to Dallas Love Field where Lyndon Johnson's waiting for it. He had, which means he had to be the one to issue that order because he's having seats removed from the back of Air Force One. He knew the body was coming. And so they, they put the casket in the back of Air Force One. They fly the casket uh, back to, I mean, to, uh, uh, to Maryland, where Johnson delivers the body, not into the hands of the local medical examiner there. They, they've got lots of pathologists there, forensic pathologists in Washington and Maryland, very competent people uh, in Washington and Maryland and, and Virginia. He doesn't deliver it to them. He delivers the body into the hands of the military. Now, why the military? I mean, this isn't a military nation. This, this wasn't, Kennedy wasn't killed on the field of battle. Uh, this was a straight civilian murder, but he delivers it into the hands of the military. Why? Because that was the point. They needed to conduct a fraudulent autopsy and un under a climate of secrecy. Uh, the military has a culture of secrecy. All they have to do is classify things. Uh, and, and they did. They classified it as top secret, this autopsy. And that's how they were able to get away with what they did. That veil of secrecy got lifted in the 1990s, 30 years, though. Don't say that the military can't keep secrets because they did. And once the ARRB comes into existence, now, what's the ARRB? That's the Assassination Records Review Board. They were enforcing the JFK Records Collection Act of 1992 that mandated that, that the Pentagon, the CIA, the Secret Service, the NSA, everybody had to release their assassination-related records, which they had kept secret for 30 years, which they're still keeping secret today, uh, uh, thousands of their records. And once they released these records, that's where the fraud came out in the autopsy. That's what mm. happened here. Wow. It's amazing. Two more points and then we can wrap up. Um, with regard to Kennedy's assassination, I know you wrote a book called Regime Change. Um, why do you think he was assassinated? And I do want to read your book. Uh, there's no question that, like we said earlier, Kennedy was the only president to buck them, uh, um, the national security establishment. Uh, Eisenhower, before he turned over the the, the the reins of power to Kennedy came out with that farewell address that says, be careful with this, this military industrial complex. They're a grave threat to, to the, the well-being of the American people or democratic system. It took Kennedy a while to figure out what was going on. But it, from the very start, he was at war with the CIA. After the CIA had, had misled him uh, with respect to the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, um, Kennedy never trusted the CIA again. In fact, he is supposedly vowed to tear the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter them to the winds. That was the quote in the New York Times. He hated the CIA and, and he was determined to destroy it. And the, the CIA, for its part, hated him. They were, they were intent on destroying him too. They, they considered him a coward, a traitor. He had betrayed those people on the beaches of, of Cuba. He had let the, the communists capture and kill the, those brave Cuban exiles. So the war was on. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis comes along. Um, Kennedy strikes a deal with, with the Soviet Union that averts nuclear war. 
The military is livid. They, they considered it the greatest defeat in U.S. history. They considered again that, that Kennedy was leading America to defeat in the Cold War, that we were going to, the Russians were going to take us over. And then Kennedy achieved this great breakthrough, this monumental breakthrough where he says, uh, we're going to turn away from what the Pentagon and the CIA are doing. And, and he turned his back on them and, and he said, we're, we're going to end the, the anti-Russia hostility that, that they had inculcated in the American people. We're going to end the Cold War. We're going to have friendly relations with the communist world. On the day he was assassinated, he had an emissary having lunch with Fidel Castro. He was going to normalize relations with Cuba. He was going to lead America in a totally different direction. He was pulling troops out of Vietnam. And because he had achieved this breakthrough, he goes to American University and declares his peace speech where he throws the gauntlet down. So the war was on. Either Kennedy was going to win or the national security establishment was going to win. And they knew that if Kennedy wins, they're out of business. We get our republic back, our limited government republic, because Kennedy would have won the 64 election. It's a certain virtual certainty that Bobby Kennedy would have run in 68 and probably won. At this point, there would have been no more Cold War, no foreign interventionism, no war on terrorism, no invasions of Iraq, Afghanistan, none, all this stuff that's gone on since Kennedy's uh, administration. Uh, so there was going to be a winner and a loser, and Kennedy mm-hmm. ended up losing. That's why they had to take him out. He was challenging their entire worldview. He was really challenging their very existence. And wow. that's why they had to take him out. Hmm. I, he, I always want who became a threat to national security. We right. talked about that earlier. Who determines who's a threat to national security? They determined that Kennedy, like Lumumba, like Akobo Arbenz in Guatemala, like Mossadegh in Iran, like uh, uh, Salvador Allende in Chile, that Kennedy ha- and like Castro had become a threat to national security. Hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I always wanted to research the uh, Kennedy assassination. Um, so. It's often said that Trump was one of the first presidents to not start any new wars. And I think I heard you on a talk show saying that um, he was involved in Somalia. Um, Could you was he involved? Did he start any new wars or did he uh, prolong any um, previous wars that we had? Well, he kept the troops in Afghanistan. He kept the troops in Iraq. He kept the troops in Syria. Uh, I mean, he kept the troops everywhere. He surrounded himself with generals. Um, he 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 made waves that he was going to bring, you know, waves against oh America's forever wars and stuff. But he kept them forever. Uh, I don't know where he pulled out any troops. Uh, didn't didn't we would, didn't we withdraw from Afghanistan, or was that under Biden? That's under Biden. Remember okay. the fiasco at the airport where Biden was pulling the final troops out, and and he he wasn't doing it voluntarily. He, you know, he was doing it because those troops were losing. Uh, yeah. they, they were they were getting pushed out just like they got pushed out of Vietnam. Uh, and, then, and then there was that horrible bombing that killed all those troops there as they were trying to evacuate. Mm. Now, uh, lastly, I was I was also reading an article about um, I think the, there was an article you wrote for Mises and it talked about the power to assassinate. And I'm I'm just hung up on this, this a power to this power to assassinate people. Um, how you gave a few examples earlier about um, 
Arbenz, who was a leader of Guatemala, um, Allende, who I forgot, I think it was Chile. He was a leader of Chile, um, Patrice Lumumba. Um, and then most recently, when Trump was in office, we assassinated Soleimani in Iran. Um, I'm just wondering, like, how is it that people or government or organizations can go around assassinating leaders with no due process. And why wouldn't the leader of a country challenge that whole concept? I mean, because you would think that as a human being, you don't want anybody going around or having the ability or freedom to assassinate you. So wouldn't you want to kind of like implement some type of justice, not only for your fellow man, but at least for yourself, because that might come back to backfire on you. Why do you why do you think no president since I, you're saying uh, since Kennedy, I guess, has challenged the system in such a way where they put their fist down and say, all right, listen, we, we got to have some order in society. Like we can't go around killing people. And, you know, even for self-interest, like I don't want people, I don't want an agency having the ability to kill me. So out of my self-interest, I'm going to clamp down a little bit. Why do you think no president has like challenged it? like legitimately challenged it, put some laws into place. Because they saw what happened to Kennedy. Everybody in Washington knows what happened. They play this game of, oh, conspiracy theory and so forth. They all know what happened to Kennedy. This was omnipotent power being exercised. Kennedy bucked them. Kennedy challenged them. Remember I mentioned that Trump made waves during his campaign of maybe challenging them, but it was really light challenge. Kennedy threw the gauntlet down. He saw what this crooked, corrupt system was doing, this national security state system. And so after they got away with Kennedy, that's power. Every president since then, every presidential candidate since then has just fallen within this this range of, of permissible discourse. Okay, you can complain about military spending and things like this and call for a downsize of the military or let's close a base here or there, but you don't challenge the system. Just like in Cuba, you know, you're not permitted to challenge the revolution in Cuba. Uh, you, you can, you can call for reform, but if you challenge the system, you're in trouble. Every presidential candidate, Republican Democrat knows that that's the acceptable range of discourse. That's what Trump violated when he was a candidate by making a little bit of waves here and mocking them about Iraq and so forth. But that's why we have this system. There's this deference to power. Uh, nobody wants to take a chance. And, and look, what foreign government, what, what can they do about it, Rashad? This is the most powerful regime in history. What does Iran do when, when Trump orders the assassination or approves the assassination of this Iranian general? We're not at war with Iran. I mean, this was a straight murder, state-inflicted murder. What can Iran do about it? What, attack the United States? They know they would be smashed. Retaliate with an assassination of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? They know what would happen to them. They would be smashed. Look at Castro. How many assassination attempts did they make on Castro? Time and time again, they were trying to murder this man because he was a communist. Did Castro ever retaliate? Never. <laughs> not one time. 
Did he come over and say, well, okay, you've tried to assassinate me. I'm going to at least assassinate a few congressmen over here. Not once, because he knew if he did that, they would smash Cuba. They would invade Cuba. But so when you face with this kind of power, you accept it. You, you just, you just live with it. And you, but this is why so much of the world hates the United States because they're so frustrated. They see the U S government doing this, killing people with sanctions, Sanctions target the innocent population of a country with death. They killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqi Iraqi children with the sanctions against that country in the 1990s. What can people do about it? If they retaliate like they did on 9-11 for what was the sanctions were producing in Iraq, they're called terrorists. And then your country is invaded as a result of that terrorist retaliation. The world has realized they can't respond to this state-sponsored terrorism on the Pentagon and the CIA. If they do, they get smashed. But that's why there's so much deep anger and resentment against the United States. This is what Kennedy tried to buck. This is what he tried to change, and he lost. This is what we need to do, Rashad. We need to change the culture of this country away from a national security state, away from state-sponsored assassinations, invasions, coups, forever wars, indefinite detention, torture. We need to restore the good founding principles of this country. That's how we get freedom, peace, prosperity, and harmony to our land. I guess, I mean, it's safe to say that all of our leaders since then have been a bunch of cowards because they just buckled and they don't really they don't challenge that system. I mean, that, that's a shame. You know, that, that says a lot because you would think even if you have children, you would think you want your children to grow up in a free society and a uh, a moral society. So you would think you would at least stand up for your children. Like, I'm not going to live that much longer, but let me stand up for my children, you know, and maybe try to change the culture or the environment. So these agencies don't have the ability to go kill my children or my family or just act lawlessly, not even with the agencies, but also in other areas as well. Jacob, I want to thank you for your time wrapping up. um, Let me just make a comment. I am so glad you said that. Uh, I mean, I mean, this is what I keep hoping that there's a moral revival in this country, but you see, that's where the welfare state comes in. You've got the massive warfare state. And, and the welfare state's like a palliative. It's like an opium dim. It keeps people pacified. Oh, I've got my social security. I've got my Medicare. I've got my education grants. So I've got my SBA loans. I've got my corporate subsidies, my corporate bailouts. I don't want to buck these people. And there's, then there's people of, that are scared of IRS audits, IRS retaliation. So they, they have this massive system that keeps people suppressed. But I agree. I'm glad you said that, that. There, if there is only a moral awakening in this country that mm-hmm. says, I want to leave a better way of life for my children and my grandchildren, and I'm willing to take a stand against this horrific, immoral, tyrannical, evil system, uh, that's what's going to change things. Don't look yeah. to Washington to change things. You got to look to the American people and you got to hope for a revival of conscience and consciousness. Right. Yeah. And God is going to hold us accountable. Definitely. Even if, right. if we participated in it and we help, hope we helped to uphold the system, God is going to hold us accountable. Um, Jacob, where can listeners find your work? Uh, go to FFF.org. We've got 33 years of principled libertarian arguments on just about every issue of the day there is. We, we have a great daily journal that uh, newsletter that we've sent out gosh for 20 years now that we consider the best 
Libertarian Daily commentary page on the Internet. Uh, that's the FFF Daily. It's free. We've got a monthly journal. It's by subscription, pretty cheap, $25 a year. We rely on donations. We would invite people to help support our work. If you like what we do and you, and you, you want to move America in a better direction, we've got a great Internet show every week called The Libertarian Angle that I do with a friend, a libertarian friend of mine named Richard Ebeling. Uh, so just come to FFF.org and take a look at our work. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for your time. And I hope to have a, a more discussion in the future with you. Oh, thank you, Rashad. And thanks for giving me plenty of time to answer your questions. I really do appreciate it. It's been a really nice interview. Thank you. Absolutely. God bless. Uh, likewise. God bless you as well. Bye.